0: I'm not going to handle it or anything like that, but you're fussing? I hear you fussing! Where's your head in? You gonna come around this way?
1: in the Smithsonian Institution at Washington, one toward August afternoon. As I stood looking at the snakes secured there in their crystal prison, two rough-looking people from Wisconsin came up. They had both of them, Saul and Moses, often killed rattlesnakes, any quantity of them, in the woods of Kentucky whence they both came. But I had better give the matter as nearly as I can in their own language. Lord, stranger, said Moses, I've killed a heap of snakes about the Green River. Yes, sure. And on the Mississippi banks. Yes, I guess a few. I remember once when I was, yes, hunting bars one day in a cane break down at Green River. That someone saying something about snakes put the darned spiteful critters all at once in my mind and I began to feel kinder scared. And my hat to kinder lift up off my head, as if my hair had turned to wire. For just then I heard an awful hissing, like an angry cat. And then the buzz of a rattle going so fast that it seemed to show double, like a tight string when you twang it back and forward with your finger. Lord a mercy, what a leap I did make backward, 17 feet if it was an inch. Well, my, if there weren't a snake coiled up under a hickory tree with its head up, its eye like a big diamond on fire, and its rattle tattling like castanets gone mad. Now, stranger, you must know, the rattlesnake don't leap like other snakes, and that's a kinder blessing to us Americans. So I drew back another two feet or so, fired both barrels of my gun, which happened to be loaded, slap into his coils, then finished him with a sock dollager from a sassafras bow, whooped him to pieces. Fact, yes, sir. When I cut off his rattles, I found he had 15 rows of them. And one of these, cause people say, comes every year. So that tarnation varmint must have been 15 year going about the world doing mischief. Wonder how many Christians he had slaughtered. Harper's Weekly, February 16th, 1861. This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same or maybe you long to. (laughs) One of the most fascinating things to me about reading history is just to see how people thought and how people spoke. It's very clear to me that people are products of their time. And uh, I don't think anyone, not many people today, I think would see a snake and interpret it in such a... uh, biblical garden of Eden, um, temptation of the devil type way anymore. And uh, for this episode, which is all about herpetology, amphibians and reptiles, I'm going to read some even older texts from uh, the medieval times and from ancient Rome. And just how people perceive the natural world in different time periods is incredibly fascinating. And I have to imagine that this episode, which is awesome, in a thousand years might be equally as strange that of what our ideas are about the natural world. Um, let me say a big special thank you to an old friend and an old boss, Luke Brinley, for letting us use some of that music. Luke Brinley is a musician, he's a venue owner in Washington, D.C. Uh, you can check out more of his music in the links in the show notes, uh, Instagram Luke Brindley, and Spotify. So today's podcast guest is J.D. Klepfer, Virginia's herpetologist with the DWR, the Department of Wildlife Resources. This is such this is such a fun and educational episode. I mean, it's to me it's so uh, inspiring. It's uh, so hopeful that. There are people out there who are making decisions about wildlife that are so pumped and so passionate. And I could just listen to him talk about herpetology endlessly, really. So uh, what you heard in the beginning of this, the very, very, very beginning of this episode, that was in his office, in a cage, he has uh, a rescue canebrake rattlesnake so that's what you heard there shaking his tail he opened up the front of that thing and to me it was definitely looked like it was in striking distance but uh jd didn't seem worried about it so it was pretty amazing to see a rattler so close up see it's shaking its tail and it was peering out from this cage sticking its head out staring directly at me and staring at jd now um obviously snakes are part of herpetology but uh I felt like I've heard a lot of really good podcasts about uh, venomous snakes. So I thought I kind of want to do something a little different. So we do talk about the canebrake rattlers at the end of this episode, but more so we're sticking with turtles and salamanders. So the snapping turtles, box box turtles, hellbenders, and all sorts of salamanders. If you find this topic in general interesting then I would say you might also be interested if you're a newer podcast listener to an old episode I did about two years ago. It's called Herpetological Spring, Peepers, Salamanders, and a Snake Girl. And that was with uh, one of our family friends, ours in my family, uh, Caroline Seats, And she's a wildlife educator for kids, but it was just as interesting for adults. And on that one, we talk a lot about what's going on in like the vernal pools. Um, it's, it's a great addition to this episode. And we even talked about um, people's perceptions about snakes kind of fitting in with that intro quote that um, to Caroline, a child, and, and JD, JD mirrors this on today's episode, uh, children are incredibly inquisitive and interested in snakes. And, and uh, Caroline on her episode talks about how as the child ages, there becomes more and more fear growing around snakes until the many adults that she has come across who loathe snakes. And um, just kind of fascinating. It, it is fascinating how our religions and our mythologies, you know, how we will project upon animals and uh, kind of fascinating, kind of fascinating. I don't really know what to say about that other than you know, we obviously, we, like in that intro, there's this devilish projection on the snake. So we've got some new folks that are pitching in on my Patreon account. Um, I want to say thank you to Nicole Redout and Carrie Shepherdson and Nigel Davies. Thank you all for joining on Patreon. Um, everyone's uh, patronage is really, really helping me out with this thing. Uh, this thing has always taken more time than I expect from my uh, paid illustration work, but I'm loving doing this. And I'm so thankful that you all uh, find this worth listening to. Um, everyone at the higher tiers, let me say a big thank you. Jess Paget, Ash Barron, Rachel Hawkshaw of Topsy Farms, On Stanley, formerly of uh, Pyramid Metaphysical Store. Um, you might have heard On on this podcast on an episode from the middle of last year that was called Metaphysical Country Store. On has moved on to a new project called Moonflower Remedy, if you're interested in following along. Uh, Also Diana Gonzalez on uh, Patreon, Earl Suter, he's our caving buddy. He was a recent guest on the podcast talking about cave rescue. Franklin Renshaw, Heron O'Brien, Jamie Nudd, one of my old buddies from my filmmaking days, James Mann, Jeff, Kenneth Giles, Leslie Peterson-Cohen, Michelle Alderson, Ryan Arnold, Rambler, Ryan Goechner, Steve Childs, Tristan Harper, Tyler Lively, the wonderful Water Light, and the working class Woodsman. Thank you all so much. It really, really helps. So for today's podcast reading, we're going to move back through time. That intro newspaper clipping was from the 1860s. Now we're gonna move back to the 1100s. What did people think about salamanders? This first reading is from The Bestiary, A Book of Beasts, being a translation from a Latin bestiary of the 12th century, made and edited by T.H. White. A bestiary is a serious work of natural history and is one of the bases upon which our own knowledge of biology is founded, however much we've advanced since it was written. There is no particular author of a bestiary. It is a compilation, a kind of naturalist's scrapbook, which has grown with the additions of several hands. Its sources go back to the distant past, to the fathers of the church, to Rome, to Greece, to Egypt, to mythology, ultimately to oral tradition— which must have been contemporary with the caves of the Cro-Magnon. Its influence has extended throughout literature, and country people are still repeating some of its saws. So popular was the bestiary that, like a stone thrown into a pool, it proceeded to spread itself over the surface of the literate world in a series of concentric rings, as it was copied and translated from one language into another, century by century. Perhaps no book, says E.P. Evans, except the Bible, has ever been so widely diffused among so many people and for so many centuries as the bestiary. The salamandra has its name because it prevails against fire. The animal is the only one which puts the flames out, firefighting. Indeed, it lives in the middle of the blaze without being hurt and without being burnt, and not only because the fire does not consume it, but because it actually puts out the fire itself. Footnote. Aristotle recorded that the salamander not only walks through fire, but puts it out in doing so. The modern representative is a small-tailed brachian, which makes its home in damp places and hibernates in dead wood. When frightened, it exudes a milky liquid. If a log containing a wintering salamander were thrown upon a weak fire, Aristotle's phenomenon might take place. Pliny was responsible for exaggerating the story, which became very popular. When asbestos was discovered, it was assumed to be the wool of this creature. Prester John had a robe made from it, and the emperor of India possessed a suit made from a thousand skins. And Pope Alexander III had a tunic which he valued highly. The salamandra beareth wool, of which is made cloth and girdles that may not burn in the fire. Caxton, 1481. I have some of the hair, or down, of the salamander, which I have several times put in the fire and made it red hot, and after taken it out, which being cold, yet remained perfect wool. Holm, 1688. It was known at an early date that the way to clean asbestos was by putting it in the fire. Needless to say, the salamander is not poisonous to man, and if kept in a fire, would burn, as Pliny must have very well known, for he burned one to make medicine from its ashes. And speaking of Pliny, we're going to go back even further, over another thousand years to ancient Rome, to the time of Pliny the Elder. This is a character who compiled a naturalis historia. So today's Wikipedia, the encyclopedias of our childhood, we have to thank uh, Pliny the Elder, um, born in 23 AD and died in 79 AD. We have to thank him for our modern Wikipedia because the idea of compiling all human knowledge was Pliny's. And uh, what he did was he compiled um, about a hundred, some say a hundred, some say 500 different authors. He compiled all of their knowledge about medicine, about animals, about uh, everything that there was to write about into these books of natural history. Now he has got some wild ideas about salamanders that uh, you can see where the, the medieval, the bestiary They took a lot of his ideas. But let's see, what did people think about salamanders 2,000 years ago? But of all venomous animals, it is the salamander that is by far the most dangerous. For while other reptiles attack individuals only and never kill many persons at a time, the salamander is able to destroy whole nations at once unless they take the proper precautions against it. For if this reptile happens to crawl up a tree, it infects all the fruit with its poison and kills those who eat thereof by the chilling properties of its venom, which in its effects is in no way different from aconite, wolf's bane. Nay, even more than this, if it only touches with its foot the wood upon which bread is baked, or if it happens to fall into a well, the same fatal effects will be sure to ensue. The saliva, too, of this reptile, if it comes in contact with any part of the body, the sole of the foot even, will cause the hair to fall off from the whole of the body. And yet the salamander, highly venomous as it is, is eaten by certain animals, swine, for example, owing no doubt to that antipathy that prevails in the natural world. From what we find stated, it is most probable that, next to the animals which eat it, the best neutralizers of the poison of this reptile are Cantharides. That is the emerald green blister beetle known as the Spanish fly, taken in drink, or a lizard eaten with the food. Other antidotes we have already mentioned. As to what the magicians say, that it is proof against fire, Being, as they tell us, the only animal that has the property of extinguishing fire, if it had been true, it would have been made trial of at Rome long before this. Sextius says that the salamander, preserved in honey and taken with the food, after removing the intestines, head, and feet, acts as an aphrodisiac. He denies also that it has the property of extinguishing fire.
0: Uh, We are in Charles City, Virginia. This is the southeastern portion of the state in the coastal plain region of Virginia, Uh, about halfway between Richmond and Williamsburg, uh, south of the 64 interstate, and uh, we're along the uh, James River. Uh, And Charles City County is probably most notable for its uh, old historic plantations. Uh, we got Route 5, which is a great historic uh, road that runs from Richmond down to Williamsburg, and there's several old uh, uh, Revolutionary War period type of plantations up and down here, and then actually right down the street here, just a m- couple miles away, is where the uh, America's first Thanksgiving occurred at Berkeley Plantation. Really? Yep. Don't let those Yankees up north tell you that Thanksgiving started up there.
1: <laughs> so what? What is the story behind that? Or what?
0: Do you- uh, I, I don't know the real details about it, but there's always been this kind of little challenge between. Berkeley Plantation, Charles City County in Massachusetts as to where the first Thanksgiving occurred. But technically, the first Thanksgiving in America occurred at Berkeley Plantation here in Charles City County. With mm. the so. 1600s? Yeah, sometime around there. I'm mm. not sure of the exact mm. date or anything. Yeah.
1: Well, it's cool for me to be back on the Chesapeake Bay because I did a whole bunch of like seven episodes about the bay. And mm-hmm. I, I kept traveling back and forth. I did one with a waterman. Uh, one with a Nanticoke uh, Native American right. interpreter at, at Jamestown. Um, did one about fossils. So, kind of really cool to be back here. So, um, well, one thing I thought would be kind of interesting before we kind of get into your interest and specialty is um, this region is so, so we've moved in the past year to the Allegheny Highlands. Mm-hmm. Um, so, we're right over that Allegheny front mm-hmm. into West Virginia, completely different ecosystem to. Where I lived back in Northern Virginia, right. just you know, the you got hemlocks and you've got uh, birch and um, rhododendron. It's just so different. So that is so different than here. So like we drove along that historical road. It's incredibly beautiful. You're saying this is one of the most rural counties in Virginia. Um, some of those like thick pine forests we we're driving through. Is that like the native forest here? Like what? What are some of the? What would the forests have been like? Uh, you know, 500 years ago here?
0: Uh, that's a good question. Uh, a lot of uh, – Charles City is a very rural uh, county. Uh, it's, it doesn't have a single stoplight, and there's nothing here really other than a Dollar General store. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the most least populated county, uh, and I believe in the state. Um Yeah, most of it, there's a lot of pine plantation, Mm a lot of uh, paper uh, products being uh, farmed, basically. So, what you're seeing is a lot of pine plantations. Okay. Uh, Historically, there was probably mixed pine hardwood forests uh, throughout this area, probably not quite as dense because of fire suppression. And uh, mm. there's just a changes in the systems. All of these forests here have probably been cut over multiple times in okay. the past couple hundred years without a doubt. Okay. So we have definitely have had a major impact on the landscape and what's all still here.
1: Yeah. So what is the pine? Which What pine Loblolly
0: is? Loblolly pine. Yes, is. probably. It's primarily loblolly pine, uh, which is a very fast-growing pine. Uh, the the harvest uh, turnaround on it is about every thirty years, mm. where they cut it. Uh, what's uh, neat about this county too is uh, is that it's the Chickahominy watershed, mm. which runs along its. Uh, eastern and through its northern boundaries, and it's a beautiful, extremely biologically diverse uh, watershed. It has some mm. very, very interesting animals throughout it, including the occasional manatee that makes it up here from no Florida. Way. Yep, and then several years ago, um, I got called by one uh, a student that was a PhD student at VCU, and he calls me up, and we were doing a snapping turtle project down here, and he calls me up and says, hey, we caught a sea turtle. And I'm like, sea turtle? I was like, where are you guys trapping? He says, down here, Morris Creek. And sure enough, I said, all right. And I was like, are you sure it's a sea turtle and not somebody's dump map turtle or some other kind of non-native species? He says, I'm a, I'm a PhD student. I know what a damn sea turtle looks like. <laughs> so I drove down there. And sure enough, they accidentally caught a, a small green sea turtle in one of our turtle traps. Um, but it just kind of shows you. I mean, even dolphins make it up through here, uh, up into these river systems. But so,
1: what uh, is that sea turtle doing? It's just
0: it was just a it was just a young adult. I mean, mm-hmm. a young uh, juvenile turtle. Oh, I probably say little, about the size of a trash can lit at best. And uh, uh, it just late summer; the water temperatures are way up um and it just kind of wandered up in here um so
1: what is abnormal about that is it would they never normally come this inland or would they not even be this north
0: this far from the coast it it was what it was what was so extraordinary and for the most part that river system is fairly fresh um so it just kind of made us wonder this way in here we ended up calling the virginia marine science museum folks and they came up here and they said this they've never seen a sea turtle this far inland before so So they ended up yeah they ended up marking it and then We just re-released it.
1: So cool. So what were you guys trapping, or what was the VCU students trapping the snapping turtles for? What were they studying?
0: Uh, Well, Virginia had a very, very uh, prolific uh, uh, commercial harvest of snapping turtles. And back in about 2013, there was a huge bubble in the market Uh, for the demand for snapping turtles to go over to augment uh, Chinese turtle farms. Hmm. And basically, the the harvest was getting out of control. And so we needed to get a better understanding of what is a sustainable harvest of snapping turtles. And that was the investigation is what sustainability of snapping turtle harvest.
1: Okay, so what... Does, what does some of that mean? Augment? So they were taking live ones for breeding yeah, yeah. in Asia?
0: Yeah, they were, they were shipping uh, uh, live female snapping turtles overseas to uh, go to their turtle farms over there so they could get up and running because there's a huge – uh, demand for turtles over in China. Um, for food? For food and for pets. Um, for
1: pets. Even a snapping turtle?
0: Snapping turtles. It doesn't matter. Um, in fact, we do a lot of work with illegal wildlife trade with turtles specifically. Hmm. Turtles are probably the most Uh, traffic vertebrate there is as far as a major group of animals anywhere in the world. There's just millions of them being illegally trafficked all around the world for base primarily for pets, pet trade for pets. Yeah,
1: outside of the U.S.
0: outside of the U.S.
1: Yeah, so I read. So, I mean, I'm gonna I always do intros with these Mm -hmm. podcasts. So, people listening will already know. But you're the state herpetologist.
0: Correct. Correct.
1: Um, I read when you're. I guess you were. Uh, I guess instrumental in. Um. Stopping uh, the putting new regulations for the box turtles because of that, because of poaching. Yeah, it was what uh, was that for? Is that for pet?
0: Yeah, the uh, box turtles in particular have become very popular overseas. Mm. Um, uh, There's uh, we had our regulations several years ago were rather weak and uh, they weren't really uh, giving the right tools for our law enforcement to be able to go after illegal trade. And we're trying Mm. to change the narrative of stop collecting stuff from the wild hmm. um, box turtles live for a hundred plus years <sighs> and you know and you're not going to keep a pet for a hundred plus years <laughs> so basically what ha- unfortunately what happens is people keep these animals for a period of time and then they want to get rid of them. And so you know with that, or they're trying to sell them and do all kinds of stuff. But yeah, box turtles are unfortunately are hot in high demand in the illegal pet trade. Well
1: how does this like, so I, I'm kind of interested just in some of this black market stuff because mm-hmm. I um, I get hired a lot as an illustrator. I've worked for a lot for um, okay. nonprofits focused on uh, the the uh, protection conservation of Appalachian plants. And so a hot topic there. Um, yeah, ginseng. ginseng.
0: Yeah, ginseng. Yeah. So,
1: how does, so like, how are these, tur- how are they, how are the folks doing this black market stuff getting turtles alive to these Asian countries? I mean, are they just like in, tubs like on a shipping container it's not
0: pretty um you know there's certain turtles that are being heavily poached uh that we call some of them are the you know like spotted turtles wood Mm. turtles box turtles diamondback terrapins uh, Mm. blandings turtles uh those are the some of the bigger more notable turtles that go in the trade and they will uh, tape them up so they can't move Uh, they'll stick them in a sock Oh uh, you God. know, and so they'll just basically pack them in. And because reptiles have a very, uh, have a very wide tolerance to environmental conditions, mm. cooler and warmer, uh, conditions, and they don't require a lot of, uh, they don't require water and food for extended mm. periods of time. They're basically, unfortunately, one of the most perfect animals to illegally traffic around the world. Um, mm. uh, but you know, birds or mammals would never make that type of transport, international wow. transport. It would survive it. But turtles, fortunately, do quite well. And um, there is a huge demand for North American turtles to head overseas, and particularly heading to China. Yeah,
1: and I uh, see. I would have thought it was mainly for food or for medicine. Do they get into some of the Eastern it's, medicine it's, stuff?
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a variety of things. Some of the larger turtles, perhaps like snapping turtles, those may be going for for food items mm. and stuff. But it's but turtles are heavily, uh, highly revered in uh, Chinese culture for longevity and a variety of other things. They're used mm. in traditional medicines and stuff like that. Uh, it's not uncommon for households over in China to have a random pet turtle, you know, wandering around their house or really? something like that, just because it's just a reverence for their culture. Mm-hmm. So, um, but unfortunately, the Chinese uh, uh, the the demand has really kind of become a vacuum for turtles around the world. It's uh, too much. Just too much. Right. Too much.
1: Yeah. Now And so, your some of your work has been to slow down uh the bag limits for collecting and or, or stop it what, so shut wh- it down is what we're trying
0: to do but you know it's it's no different than any other illegal trade whether if it's drugs guns humans or whatever as long as there is a demand somebody's going to try and supply that demand to make mm. money um so it's a basic supl- supply and demand uh, fortunately we can control the supply and the supply is our turtles here. Mm-hmm. Um, so our regulations kind of were changed to allow our law enforcement folks to be able to really focus and go in after uh, these illegal traffickers. Yep.
1: So I was, because uh, I've gotten kind of, my getting into being my interest with the natural world and whatnot has also mm-hmm. been kind of around getting into hunting over like the past five years. So when, you know, reading all those regulations, you know, learning that you definitely can't be selling a deer, and right, you get in trouble right. in five seconds. Of course, with fur bearers and trapping, there, there are some, you can do something more with that. But I was absolutely astonished to, to even learn that you could get a, a ton of snapping turtles and sell them. Yep. I, I didn't even, I was like astonished that that was legal to yep. begin with.
0: Yeah, uh, we're not so much worried about like the kind of mom and pop type operations where Mm. people are kind of doing it for uh, you know just to supplement an income or Mm. just to do it as a hobby and sell Mm. a few turtles. Snapping turtles are very prolific throughout the Mm. state; Uh, they're quite abundant in many areas. Mm. Um, uh, They're very much a generalist, Uh, Mm. so they they have a lot of attributes that make them uh, an animal that could probably have some kind of level of harvest. But the uh, commercial harvest had gotten so out of control Mm. by the 2013 that uh, there was just massive numbers of animals being harvested. And we were able to get that under control. And now it's much more manageable, sustainable numbers.
1: I mean, so some of the lore with like ginseng is it gets like a little hairy. You got arm. It's like kind of almost like you were saying, with any black market, you get into like it's connected into drug yeah, stuff. It's like you're gonna have people that are armed. I mean, do you have like armed people stealing turtles?
0: Well, you can have uh, they use a lot of the similar trade, uh, trade mechanisms like mm. they do with the illegal drug trade and stuff like that. Now, we're not seeing like cartels moving in and, mm. and kicking over turtle trade. What it is, it's uh, I've heard law enforcement refer to it as called like smurfing. It's basically you get smaller operators that are kind of going out and collecting and sending animals to one big operator. Mm. Um, there was actually an incident up at Penn State where there was a Chinese national student that was approached by an illegal uh, trade person from China and said, hey, mm. we'll pay you X number of dollars. You go out and get us some turtles. Mm. Uh, and unfortunately, this uh, student got himself into a lot of hot water and some big trouble uh, for doing that. But
1: Accepting the offer.
0: Yeah, accepting offers. So, in reptiles, uh, the uh, the legal trade in reptiles is huge. There's a lot of collectors. There's big demand. Unfortunately, reptiles uh, from a society level, cultural level, aren't viewed on the same plane as like birds and mammals. People have a lot more empathy for birds and mm-hmm. mammals and how they're treated than they are for reptiles. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. and then, but turtles. It's kind of hard to find somebody that doesn't like turtles. Yeah, I think <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you're okay. But the trade also includes snakes and other animals mm. too, and it's really hard for folks to kind of rally around snakes and some from some mm. aspects. But you know, they all have a role, and they're all here to protect the legacy of these animals mm. in our state. So yeah, the regulations uh, kind of really closed a lot of the loopholes that some of these operators were uh, these poachers were operating under.
1: Mm. Yeah. One thing that's popped into mind talking about the box turtle, because obviously, anyone walking around in the woods in the, in the east, you're gonna stumble yep, into it yeah. in the summer. You're gonna stumble into a, an awesome little uh, right box turtle. Well, I I have like a little old time uh, booklet, like an ID booklet, one of those beautiful like ones from maybe the. 1950s that are illustrated. Yeah, the, old, the old Peterson guys th- or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah the old Peterson
0: them. guys. Everybody had one in that generation growing up. And yeah. it,
1: it said something about the box turtle that um, I guess that they eat poisonous mushrooms yeah, eat. and then their bodies will collect the poison. So if for some odd reason you wanted to try to eat a box turtle, that you could die of the poison that... That's that, a new one on me. Yeah. I don't know. It
0: could be. I don't know. I would. I, I, there's not a lot of meat in a box turtle, so I don't know. You'd have to be really, really hungry to try to be eating a box turtle. Now, That's a strange tip. Yeah, they're uh, they're you know they're they live. You know, nobody really knows how long a box turtle can live. Um, you know, there's no doubt that nobody's gonna argue they can live for a hundred years or more mm. if they're in the right conditions and left alone.
1: Extraordinary.
0: Yeah, it is. They are they're really cool animals. And unfortunately they're they're very charismatic and they're very attractive. And so people who are out hiking or somewhere pick one up and you know, unfortunately their kids want to say, oh let's take it home and keep it as a pet. Mm. And but once you remove it from the wild, um that animal no longer is contributing to its population. And if everybody has that attitude of taking one then they begin to wink out, and the thing about it is with turtles, because they're so long lived, they uh, their their life history is there's really high levels of mortality at, at the nest and first year. About ninety plus percent of mm. turtle nests and hatchlings don't survive their first year, mm. and that's offset by longevity. That's why they reproduce throughout their you know their entire lifespan. They never senesce and stop reproducing. Mm. So. The model for a box turtle is if it gets one or two of its offspring throughout its lifespan that reaches sexual maturity and adult health, that's a successful turtle. Mm. So we really want to protect those bigger, older animals that are the reproductive uh, adults. Mm. Um, so it's a uh, it's it's a real challenge. It's definitely a lot different, you know, when you're trying to manage, you know, bear or deer or something like that that you know reaches sexual maturity within a couple three years probably. Mm. I mean deer's probably reproducing the following year mm-hmm. uh, or two. And you know, a turtle, their sexual maturity may be 10, 12, 13 years or longer. Wow. Yeah. Before they start reproducing.
1: So uh, you know, I'm obviously familiar with, you know, when they're little babies of the sea turtles, you know, they're getting sure. wiped out by, you know, I don't know, raccoons, anything on the beach yep. or yep. things waiting in the water. So for something like a box turtle that's gonna be in the woodlands, what are coming after them when they're little?
0: Everything, really? everything's coming after them. Unfortunately, we also have a lot of problems with what we refer to as subsidized predators. These are uh, very generalist, kind of, typically mammalian or avian predators, crows, raccoons, mm. skunks, possums. Raccoon population is way more overly inflated than it, should, than it naturally should be. And raccoons are, can be devastating on turtle, pop, per, turtle nesting. They'll just go right down an, an area, a particular area. You might get a, a a real sunny bank where the turtles are all nesting, and it's not uncommon to go to that bank during the nesting season and see a raccoon that's just gone right down the side of the bank and dug up every nest and eaten them all. And we've seen this on the on the uh, Barrier Islands, even with uh, raccoons and their impacts on ground nesting birds as well.
1: So yeah. when I interviewed your colleague, the fur bear biologist, Mike Fees. Yep. Um, he mentioned how, cause I was, I'm kind of interested in trapping a little bit. Sure. I was definitely interested to see as someone who's never grown up in any of these worlds, the trapping is, can seem so, uh, almost barbaric in a way. So I was just trying to figure out ethically if I was into some of this stuff. Um, and it was fascinating to hear Mike talk about like on the Chesapeake Bay and, or on, oh, sorry, uh, Chincoteague and an Assateague, they, Trap pretty hard because the yeah, raccoons yeah. are so hard on the on some of the birds that are almost endangered, like the piping plover, I think sure. is one of them. Um, so it you know, I have heard that raccoon populations are just raccoon, enormous. Uh, Red enormous. Fo-
0: red fox are another big one, too, out there. If mm. you get a fox or raccoon on some of those bear islands, and you will see zero productivity uh, that year because they just eat all of the eggs and they'll eat the for, chicks and everything what? else. For birds
1: and birds.
0: reptiles? Mostly for birds because mm. that's where most of the research has been. But mm. I've been out to the bear islands, and I've seen where uh, – during the nesting season for diamondback terrapins, and you'll see raccoons just go right down the lot, right down the shoreline, just digging up every single nest and eating them. Hmm. And they get so focused in on that pulse of food source on the landscape that they'll actually walk right past a rail nest that's sitting right there because they're not even interested in bird nests; they're just so the focused turtle on eggs t- turtle eggs. Are too good. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah.
1: Wow. Um, let's see. Oh, I, I was going to say I've seen a a uh, box turtle laying eggs in a field is yeah. one of the coolest things ever. Just seeing it kind of with its back feet, just kind of pushing out the dirt and kind of, I guess, kind of nesting its rear kind yeah. of like in a yep. yep. little hole. So neat.
0: Yep. And they all lay about two to four eggs. And uh, it takes, you know, depending upon the t- temperatures of that of that time period, um, incubation could be 45, 60 days. And then they'll hatch usually in the late summer, Um, if the eggs are laid extremely late in the year, uh, or in some of the higher latitudes, they may, the hatchlings may hatch, but then stay in the nest cavity and then emerge the following spring, Hmm. which puts them in an even longer and higher probability of a predator or somebody digging them up Hmm. and finding them. Is
1: it pretty similar with the snapping turtle?
0: Uh, snapping turtles, uh, I'm not sure about some of the higher latitudes, but Hmm. snappers just produce one egg clutch in the spring. Where Uh, are
1: they doing that? Is it like underwater in the pond or is it like in – No, they come up on – Except
0: for a couple of extraordinary turtles like in Australia. Uh, Australia always seems to be the exception to almost every rule. Hmm. Uh, That uh, uh, they just lay them up on a sunny, Hmm. well-drained soil, uh, usually south-facing. Something gets a lot of sun exposure to kind of, you know, basically toast them and keep them incubated. Um, but, uh, there's some turtles, like some of the smaller turtles, like our mud turtles, they may lay two or three clutches a year. Um, Hmm. and, but those ones that are laid late in the year, it's not uncommon for them to overwinter and then hatch out the following spring. Is
1: there a turtle rut and a turtle breeding season and a turtle laying season?
0: Yeah. Um, May, June, uh, you'll see a lot of nesting. It's when we start to get phone calls. People call up and say, there's this giant... you know dinosaur looking turtle in my garden and it's angry and hissing at me and it's guarantee it's a big female snapping turtle and I always tell them don't worry about it it's just there to lay its eggs mm. it'll it'll move on and like what about the and I always love the uh uh the love joy argument as I c- I'll call it and that is uh well, what about the children, man? When you're, when you're dismissive of somebody's fears about something, like they saw a snake in the yard or something like that, and you're kind of dismissive, don't worry about it. It's just an old rat snake or something. It's not going to bother you. They always come back with, what about the children? And I'm like, well, I can't think of the last time somebody's child was was consumed and eaten and attacked by a snapping turtle.
1: <laughs> and, and a kid would love seeing a snapping yeah, turtle.
0: Yeah, and I was like, just tell them to leave it alone. Don't um, touch its face. Yeah, just stay away from it and look at it and leave it alone and it'll go. You know, I always tell folks when it comes to wildlife, live your life by four simple words. Just leave it alone. Mm. That'll resolve almost 90% of all human wildlife conflicts.
1: Mm, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The people are getting bit. They're always kind of messing with them.
0: Oh, that's how a lot of people get bit by venomous snakes is that they, some reason they feel compelled to have to do something about it and they get themselves into trouble and that's what usually happens. And unfortunately with venomous snakes too, Quite often, alcohol is involved in a lot of (laughs) testosterone and stupidity. (laughs) There was a it's a deadly mix.
1: (laughs) There's literally a guy on my road in West Virginia who's just in the hospital last summer because he was messing with a rattlesnake.
0: Alcohol testosterone is probably a deadly deadly uh, combination for uh, for wildlife.
1: There's something I I don't want to get away from the snapping turtles because I find them they're so incredible. Yeah. Um, I remember uh, Vivian, who you met, my lady, uh, she was reading some paper and this kind of astounded me because we were talking, before we got on the podcast, we were talking a bit about, uh, like I mentioned, your colleague with the fur bearers. So we were talking about mustelids and she was reading some paper about river otters. And it was saying that there was some group in Virginia, maybe it was you guys, I don't know, that were studying snapping turtles. And I guess in the winter, the snapping turtles are down in the mud in the bottom ponds and whatnot. And they found that river otters came down and just literally like ate the snapping turtle out of its shell. Just like, just completely just ripped it to shreds from all of the soft parts it could get to around its shell.
0: Otters are brutal and they are very efficient hunters. They have got great sharp, powerful, you know, claws and teeth and uh, there's actually some videos out there of otters attacking adult snapping turtles, and they just kind of pick around at them and pick around at them until finally they end up killing them. And they and it's a it's a very graphic uh, and brutal way to die. But you know this isn't Disney. Yeah. And uh, but yeah, um, I've seen down uh, in some areas like in Back Bay, which is the southeastern extreme of Virginia, uh, the Back Bay area in Southern Virginia Beach. Um, down there during the wintertime, I've seen slider turtles uh, laying up on land that have obviously been chewed on. You can see all the chew marks around. Them. And what the, what's going on is that the otters are pulling them up out of the mud and eating them uh, while they're hibernating and then just kind of sit up there on the bank and chew on them. But, yeah, otters can be, <sighs> otters can be very uh, devastating to uh, – Fish populations, turtles, and stuff like that, yeah. yeah
1: the, some of those fur bears are brutal. They
0: are brutal, yeah. Wow, wow. Yeah.
1: Well, this is making me feel a little bit better about trapping yeah. some of them. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I love all these animals. I think they're all cool, and they're, and they're so neat to learn about them all. Um, I guess while we're on turtles, I guess I think an obvious question is, and you just mentioned it with the hibernating, like what are all these animals doing right now in the winter? So are, is it a real... You know, so I've learned a bit about black bears. I know they don't actually hibernate. They go into torpor. So what are these reptiles and amphibians
0: doing? Are they in a real hibernation? Well, uh, there's a difference between uh, – hibernation is kind of a mammalian okay. type thing, okay. which don't worry about. Nobody's going to – I'm not going to correct you, but if somebody says hibernating – but with reptiles, uh, the term is uh, – more appropriate term is called brumation. Okay. And it's not really a uh, – the big difference is that hibernation, um, the animal will eat All the way up until the point where it wants to go hibernate. Basically, it's fattening up. You Mm -hmm, see these mm -hmm. pictures of these grizzly bears that are just massively fat from you know fattening up. They'll eat and eat and eat before they go into hibernation. With reptiles, they don't do that. They'll stop before going they'll stop Mm -hmm. eating before going into hibernation or brumation because their metabolism shuts down to a point where they can no longer digest. And so this is kind of it's really more of just an extended period of inactivity. For brumation, because even during the winter, you get a warm, rainy uh, event like we just had. Mm-hmm. Um, and if the sun pops out, and it's like kind of a warm, temperate winter day, it's not unusual to see turtles or snakes really? pop out and kind of bask themselves. Now, they're not going to be active and trying to feed or anything, but they'll pop out, and they'll uh, sun themselves and bask, and then they'll really? go back under. Now, what can happen during this time period is something called winter kill. And winter kill happens when you get a very warm period like we have right now. Mm-hmm. And then what we've got coming in this weekend is that we have a cold snap. And some of these cold snaps can come in so fast that they will catch these animals out and exposed. And mm. unfortunately, it'll kill them because they've come out and left themselves exposed. And they, because of their reduced body temperature and reduced metabolism, they're mm. very lethargic. And they may not be able to get moving back to you know, their, their refugia where they're brumating. What does
1: refugia mean?
0: Uh, refugia is just kind of a term of like their den site. Yeah. Like, like wherever they're hibernating, quite often it can be anything, uh, in a rock pile. It could be an old stump underground, uh, with box turtles. It may just be, uh, in the forest somewhere, just kind of hunkered down into the leaf litter a few inches. Okay. As long as they kind of get below that frost line, they're pretty good and, that's why we need a lot of forested areas for these animals to hibernate in
1: so I'm sure yeah. I'm assuming rock piles would probably be like snakes yep yeah nah, snakes nah. lizards stuff like that lizards yeah. now yeah. how about the snapping turtles gonna be down in the mud
0: they're gonna be down at the bottom of the like, creek or mud buried in some of some uh ant turtles or you know they go up on land and, and go down to the leaf litter like box turtles mm, really? and stuff. Uh, But some of the more aquatic turtles like uh, sliders and painteds and snappers, uh, they'll just kind of go down the bottom of a lake or stream or whatever, and they'll just burrow into the bottom of the mud. Do they not need any oxygen? Well, that's an interesting – that's a whole other topic. Uh, With turtles, obviously they have lungs and they're air breathing. Mm -hmm. But their metabolism shuts down so far to where their heart may beat like once a minute. And they'll actually go to a gas exchange process that's around the neck, uh, skin around the neck, similar to like how almost like a amphibian will respirate gases through their skin. The, the skin around their neck and legs, will respirate gases. Um, and they'll also, for... For lack of a better term, and, and is uh, they'll b- breathe through their butts, literally. Hmm. So their cloacal opening, the, mem- the, uh, the the tissues around their cloaca opening, they'll actually can respirate gases that well as, way as well. So, but yeah, they can stay underwater for months at a time that way. But
1: so through their butt, they're, is it like, they're pulling oxygen from the water.
0: Uh, yeah, it's just uh, it's just the uh, water is just around the tissues and around the skin and everything around their tail and their cloacal opening. That's how they respirate some of the gases.
1: Out. I, I had no idea. I'm yeah. glad I asked. That's yeah, s- it's super a, fascinating.
0: Yeah, so it's yeah it's uh, so it's, yeah literally uh, you know they have lungs and they're air breathing animals, but they can go and they can go to this point of inactivity where they can stay underwater for months at a time. Incredible. Yeah.
1: Now, the how about frogs and salamanders? What are they doing? Where are they? Same
0: at? thing. Uh, some of the frogs may go, depending upon the species, some of them may go into the streams and hibernate in the streams. Others may go up on land and kind of burrow down into the leaf litter or underneath a log and stuff like that. So it just depends upon the species. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yep.
1: And same for salamanders.
0: Yeah. Salamanders. Actually, this time of the year, uh, there are several species of salamander that are quite This is their peak activity period.
1: Really? It's already starting?
0: Yeah. Right now, actually, uh, for the last few weeks, we've been doing a lot of what they're referred to as the embistamid salamanders. These are the large mole salamanders, like spotted, tiger, Mm -hmm. marbled salamanders. Um, This is kind of their breeding season for spotted tigers. Um, the
1: spotted is that beautiful gray one with the big yellow spots. Yep. yep Incredible. But, yeah. We've seen a bunch of those in vernal pools.
0: Yeah, they're very common. This is uh, the time of year during these heavy winter rains when the uh, these seasonal wetlands, often co- referred to as vernal pools, mm-hmm. uh, start to develop. And they're ephemeral in nature, so they don't get uh, predatory fish established in them. But they're really important for amphibians to breed in because of that. And so this time of the year, the salamanders will migrate to these uh ancestral breeding sites and they'll go through their same process they've been doing for years and for a millennia. So, so cool. Yeah. So it's amazing so, to think that during a cold winter rain like it is right now, you have a basically a cold-blooded animal that is at its peak activity period.
1: I love it. I did in uh one of the earlier podcasts I did with a woman who is deep, very deeply passionate with herpetology and she's uh does uh, education for kids, but she calls it herpetological spring, and I love that because it's like the first. It's like, well, to me, un- my untrained eye, uh, it seems like it's the first sign of spring because it's before the trees bud. Is this is this uh, salamander season?
0: Yeah, the uh, yeah they start uh, with tigers get started. Well, marble salamanders actually get started in the fall they have a unique process is that they lay their eggs along the per, the wrong the edges of vernal pools and they wait for the rains to fill up and then when when the rains fill up the ponds and then they inundate the eggs that's when the eggs trigger and start to develop and hatch out and then the next wave is the tiger salamanders usually around late December they start to move in and they'll breed in standing water you know in more notable larger ponds and then towards January so there's kind of these phases of different species mm, that move mm. that that breed throughout the winter. Mm. but by mid by mid-February uh, which is you know middle of winter still mm. um, la- latter part of winter, uh, frogs will start to show back up mm. and by mid-February around here you'll hear chorus frogs and that mm. to me is always one of the first signs of spring is coming is when you start to hear the chorus frogs mm. chirping. The other one, too, is the smell of skunk. (laughs) Mm, I think mating season, something's going on with skunks around mid, late February. (laughs) But you start to get that odor going up and down the highway. (laughs) Yeah, you know,
1: I mean, this might sound a little morbid, but it's been interesting living in the country just to be aware of the roadkill. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And there's phases. They'll be like, okay, I see a bunch of possums right now on the side of the roads. Now I see a bunch of raccoons on the road. You're clearly seeing animal... Ruts and movements, and sure, uh, sure, they, kind of fascinating.
0: Yeah, that well, fall, you'll see all the unfortunately, all the roadkill deer and everything uh-huh. everywhere, but it uh, totally
1: lines up with the rut. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, while we're on salamanders, sure. let's get into the legendary hellbenders. So, we were just both. Okay. I didn't see you there, but we were just uh, both part of the Virginia Winter Wildlife Festival. I was vending, and you were doing a lecture presentation on hellbenders, right? Yep. And, well, first of all, it had an amazing title, and so I was like, what the hell is he talking about with this title? Are those all folk names for the Hellbender?
0: Yeah, they're just, uh, it's, uh, you know, the Hellbender's in Virginia, uh, only found in the southwest part of the state, uh, in the uh, Tennessee and uh, Ohio River drainages, you know, down there in the New River, the Clinch, Holston, and um, yeah, a lot of the, there's a lot of local names, Grampus, Lasagna Sides, Allegheny Alligator, Snot Otter. <laughs> uh, water dog. So, and and what's interesting is that some of those names are more popular in p- particular areas within Southwest Virginia.
1: I love it. Um, what was that second one? You said sliders. Sliders.
0: Snot otters. I heard the snot otter. Uh, Allegheny. A- Allegheny alligator. Um. Lasagna sides. Yeah,
1: what? Lasagna sides?
0: Yeah, lasagna sides. uh, If you look at it at Hellbender, they have these very long uh, Ah. skin folds up and down the sides, and it looks like flaps of lasagna noodles. And what those Ah. lasagna noodles do is that that's where they quite often they respirate a lot because they're an aquatic salamander. Mm -hmm. Um, And actually, if you have a salamander, a hellbender in captivity and it's not getting enough oxygen, it'll actually sit there and start rocking back and forth to f- kind of move those hmm. uh, skin folds to uh, kind of move more water and oxygen across it. But, uh, yeah, they're a very cool animal.
1: Well, okay, anyone listening who might not be familiar with a hellbender, describe it a little bit. Because, uh, I mean, it's an extraordinary creature.
0: It's uh, <laughs> It looks like a, four, a very large four-legged brown... Uh, salamander uh but huge it's huge they can get up to about 29 inches long it's north america's largest salamander uh we do have one salamander around here that actually gets longer those are uh, two-toed amphiumas. they get up to about three feet long oh my god but by by mass and size hellbenders are definitely north america's largest um their closest relative is the Japanese giant salamander, which is basically on the exact opposite side of the globe. Mm. Um, but uh, So there's some really interesting evolutionary processes as to how they got here. But salamanders and salamanders in general in the southern Appalachia are is what I refer to and what others refer to as the jewels of, Ap- southern, of Appalachia. Mm. Um, Virginia has... Uh, 55 56 species of salamanders several that are only found in virginia they're global endemics Mm -hmm. but the hellbenders are is uh one of the our our big focus conservation uh species do a lot of work with uh bill hopkins lab out of virginia tech Uh, he's been a fantastic uh, conservation partner for decades literally working on this species but yeah they're a really cool species um like i said they're About four, they're about. uh, They can get up to about twenty nine inches long. They're kind of a big brown. They're kind of some have a little olive or or like a little pumpkin color to them. Little blotches, uh, very broad heads on them, Um, and they kind of just live under rocks and they in creeks and rivers. Yeah, moving creeks and rivers. You'll never find them in a lake or a pond or anything. They're Mm. in very fast moving, typically well oxygenated, cold uh, streams. uh, and they just live underneath rocks, mm. um, the males uh, mating seasons usually late August early September, um, and the males what we refer to as den masters uh, they 'll occupy a rock and they may they 'll try to get to you know get females to come in and lay their eggs there and then the mm. female will abandon the nest site and leave the the uh, uh, the duties of raising the and guarding the eggs to the male. Mm. And the male will stay with that eggs in uh, the larvae up and through about mm, middle of middle of April the following year. So it's about six month uh, job for them to, to hmm. guard the eggs. Yeah. Um. What? So
1: what kind of stuff are you guys doing to try to help protect these guys or help them out or what? What's their? What's their? Uh, Status right now. Well, are they, are uh, they in a lot of trouble or what's going yeah, on? Yeah, there's
0: a lot of areas that throughout their range, uh, they range all the way up into southern New York. And then there's some isolated populations out in Missouri uh, and then down through to northern Georgia and northern Alabama. Uh, but North Carolina and Southwest Virginia is, and uh, Tennessee, uh, I'll probably put West Virginia in there too, uh, are kind of the core of where they seem to be really doing well in the southern part of the range. Um, Unfortunately, a uh, lot of agricultural runoff, sedimentation, mm. stuff like that in these streams, that sedimentation covers over the eggs. Uh, the eggs aren't able to, uh, you know, respirate and mature. So it Kills the eggs, mm. um, and so we've had a lot of problems with that. Um, some of it's just outright persecution. Uh, there's still some folklore about they're poisonous, and they're not poisonous. Mm. And so when people catch them when they're fishing, they'll unfortunately kill them and mm. get them off the hook or something. So
1: oh, you can a- bycatch, you can actually yeah, catch
0: them? you get people actually, particularly if you're bottom fishing with like worms or something like that, you might hook one, catch mm. one that way. Um, so we do a lot of work with uh, looking at their status. Um, uh, and, you know, conservation, what's, you know, what, where do we need to be focusing our work? Uh, we've done everything from nest boxes to looking at various diseases and stuff Mm. like that. Um, but the big 800 pound gorilla, so to speak, with their conservation is, uh, we need to get more forested streams, uh, Mm. the elimination of forested buffer on these streams, really changes the dynamic of these streams streams become warmer less dissolved oxygen changes the uh, the, uh, the, the, the invertebrate structure within that stream so you know you can do all this work but it's really about trying to get these forested buffers and getting landowners involved with you know reforesting some of their stream buffers and stuff like that well
1: so it sounds to me the reason that they're doing so well in the areas you mentioned it's appalachia so it's like mount big steep a lot of appalachia there's no farms there's no agriculture there's just super steep mountains and hollers that go that pinch down right into a creek yeah so that must be why they're
0: they do – it sounds kind of cliche, but where they're doing well, they're doing well, and where they're doing bad, they're doing really bad. And so, yeah, so like I said, some of the upper reaches that are going to more of the forested areas, they do really – they're doing well, and they're very stable in those because there's huge forested areas. But those streams are very uh, flashy, and they're a little bit more – and they don't quite have the productivity that you can, like in a lower elevation, some mm. of the bottomland streams. Uh, but in those bottomland areas – Fortunately, that's where a lot of development is going on Mm. because, you know, either it's road development, urbanization, agriculture, and stuff like that. Mm. Um, So, yeah, so you can really, within one particular stream, you can have stretches where they're doing really good, and then you can Mm. have stretches where they're not doing so good. Mm. And you could have a bottom stretch that is really ideal looking and everything else, but if something's going on upstream, then it affects it all the way downstream as well. Of course, all the the
1: pollution issues. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I interviewed a um, uh, Tom, what's his last name? Anyways, I did an episode with uh, an environmental writer in uh, Salisbury. Okay. Um, Such a cool guy, Um, but he talked a lot about issues with a lot of the runoff on the, in that going into the bay. And then obviously all those Appalachian streams, a lot of them connect into the Chesapeake Bay watershed. Yep. So any yep. junk that's happening up there, it's going to end up all the way down here.
0: Yeah. Most of our, you know, what's that, uh, you look at Chesapeake Bay. A lot of uh, historically, I'm not a Chesapeake Bay expert, so this may have changed. But a lot of the uh, nitrogen and loading and stuff like that was coming from further upstream, up into you know Pennsylvania and those mm. areas where mm. you had a lot of agricultural work going on. Mm. Yeah, Tom Horton was the guy. I okay, don't know if you know him. Uh, the name sounds really yeah. familiar. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: Um, let's see. While we're on salamanders, oh, okay. I was going to say, like. Yeah, I like a lot of the creatures that are elusive, like all those mustards, uh-huh. all yep. the, the ones that no, barely anyone gets to see. I mean, could you leave here, drive to southwestern Virginia? Could you, in like one day, find a hellbender? Oh, easy. Easy? Yeah. Oh, you just know the kind of habitat that they would be in. And find uh,
0: we have a good idea where their where their distribution is. Uh, they're fairly sedentary they find a really good rock and you can pretty much find them there consistently the same rock. yeah okay. So they're not a huge dispersal or anything they're not moving big ranges or okay. anything like that okay. um but this time of the year we don't do any work uh on hellbenders like that because of the fact that they, they are sitting on eggs uh or larvae um and uh, we don't and if you were to flip that rock and try to you know, look for help. There's a good chance that you could expose that nest and then the stream, of course, would just blow the nest out and mm. send everything downstream. And then the eggs will
1: obviously die. Without yeah,
0: that. yeah. And that's what we don't mm. want to have happen. So we've been using a lot of nest boxes, artificial structures, uh to uh so we can monitor reproductive output and we can see where we're having problems where we're not hmm. uh where better areas are so we can at least ha- gather some baseline it's a lot less intrusive than disturbing hmm. uh going in and flipping rocks and everything else and we understand that you know you have a lot of like you know herpers mm-hmm. uh which are enthusiastic like birders are enthusiastic mm-hmm. folks that want to go out and see these animals and we really tell them don't flip rocks. Just go out there and during you know late summer, and you can walk around these streams, and you'll probably see one out crawling around. Mm. Um, and we and we really discourage people. Don't get in streams and start moving rocks and everything around to build your own little private little pool or something. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, don't be building carns with rocks and stuff like that. Because we have seen evidence of, of uh, hellbenders getting killed accidentally when people have moved these big boulders and accidentally pinched them underneath the boulder and mm. killed them. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, they're they're an extraordinary-looking animal. Uh, They're really cool. Uh, They are basically unchanged for 160, 170 million years. I mean, they predate dinosaurs. Uh, You know, the Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world. They're 400 million years old. They've never been glaciated for the most part, Uh, and uh, in the southern part of the range at least. And uh, so you have the extraordinary amount of salamander diversity uh, when you get, you know, Virginia and on further south in the Appalachia Mountains.
1: Yeah, a lot of the – so I've mentioned I work with a lot of uh, nonprofits regarding the plants of Appalachia yeah. and just uh, just the biodiversity there. It's such an extraordinary yeah, region.
0: It is. It it, is there's bi- so it is, much it is, going there's on. There's so much biological diversity in the southern Appalachia uh, that, yeah, that, I mean, we have s- – we just described a couple more salamander species in Virginia. And from what I understand, they'll be describing eight or nine more new species here over the next few years. They were just found? Yeah. Wow. And, and most in of Virginia? it's genetics. Most of it's genetic work. Hmm. Uh, you know, the cryptic species, as they refer to them. Hmm. Um, but when you think about it, the last glacial period, which was, you know, 11,000, 12,000 years ago, the Conian period, uh, glacial period, uh, I should say episode. Uh, That glacial sheet only came down to like Pennsylvania and stuff Mm. like that. So we didn't get glaciated. So that's why we have all this diversity here. So everything Mm. basically Pennsylvania and further north, that's only gotten there since the last 10, 12,000 years. Mm. Because everything up there was under a mile of ice. (laughs) But in Virginia and on further south, we never had that. So we have a lot of these relic populations that were isolated on mountaintops and we and i refer to those as like sky island hmm. uh inhabitants because they literally are on a sky island they only have inha- they have very narrow environmental conditions that they can live in these salamanders hmm. and so they live on these mountaintops where it's nice and cool and moist but they can't disperse anywhere you can't go up and you can't go down because the habitat conditions if you go down aren't good for you so you're really isolated on these mountaintops and that's why i like to refer to them as sky island animals yeah
1: when i interviewed that other woman who's uh, really into herpetology she mentioned that there are certain species that that live on one like on one mountain mountaintop so there's the entirety of the existence of this creature is just on one mountaintop in appalachia
0: yeah there's well maybe a Two or three. It may be a little cluster of them, like two or three little mountaintops. But Virginia is uh, home to, I think, four global endemics. Uh,
1: Endemic means only in one Only found
0: in Virginia. Got it. Uh, That's Shenandoah salamander, big levels, Peaks of Otter, and the Dixie Cavern salamander. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's others that are not much better different they're only you know very very range restricted species yeah
1: now we were reading on the way here vivian was reading while i was driving that um if you know tell me if you know anything about this that there's this kind of wild research regarding salamander's ability to regenerate limbs and trying to figure out how to use this for humans to like regenerate tissue scar for scars for surgery scars like Tell me anything you know about that, because that's out there.
0: That's probably a little bit outside of my. That's kind of like into the medical field. But yeah, yeah. regeneration in a lot of amphibians is not uncommon. Uh, huh. And they're taking a look at, like, uh, you know, for. F- a salamander loses a foot or toe or something like that to their ability to regenerate that limb and how they can do that and apply that to um, human technology. I'm not really sure where sure. all that's going. It's kind of outside my- my Sure. My but belly. so if
1: some raccoon eats the leg off of a salamander, it will just recreate a it bone, the rec- whole bone will
0: recreate there? can't answer that okay. one. That all was, a, yeah, that was a little, I'm not sure of the physiology of what's all involved mm. and how much can be removed before it won't, re, but yeah, mm. if there's some toe damage and stuff like that, there are several species of salamander that have the ability to regenerate that, yeah.
1: Okay, now we're yep. going to go into my interests, and if you don't know much about it, that's fine. Folklore. So, she was reading on the way here, there's an incredible amount of salamander folklore, like from medieval times. And she was reading some wild stuff. Like one thing I find so fascinating is just how people thought throughout the past and just how people perceived animals throughout the past. So fascinating, you know, for instance, when the Europeans got here, you know, in the Bay, um, they saw raccoons, they thought they were small bears. So stuff like that is fascinating. She was reading, well, one thing I remember, we watched a documentary on European salamanders Mm -hmm. and there's one that has no pigment it's very translucent, it's white. I don't even know if it has eyes, I can't remember, but uh, and they, they're in caves. And it was talking about how in medieval times, uh, whoever these Italian rural people are, farmers, whatever, they, every once in a while, they would see one of these salamanders come out of a cave and they thought that they were baby dragons.
0: I wouldn't doubt it. Um, <laughs> you know, there, we don't have any, uh, I guess like you refer to them as troglobitic uh, salamanders. There's the Georgia blind, cave blind salamanders in Texas. There's some blind salamanders. They only live in the caves. They're, they're basically, they have no pigment. They're mm-hmm. blind and stuff like that. Um, but the word salamander, uh, I believe, has uh, uh, you know, Prussian or Arabic origins, and it basically translates as fire lizard. And the story behind that was, and if you look at uh Ray Bradbury's uh 19 you know, Fahrenheit 451. Okay, of course. The 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 badges that the firemen wore had a salamander on it. I didn't remember that. Yeah, that's in uh Ray Bradbury's four fifty 450, Fahrenheit Four Fifty One. Incredible book,
1: obviously an incredible yeah.
0: book. And uh the story was back in the medieval times was that uh and even uh, the great Leonardo da Vinci even referred to these animals as having no aesthetic value and blah, blah, blah. And they rekindled their skin or renewed their skin through fire and all this other stuff. And, uh, and what, it, what happened was is that when people built fires and throw a log on the fire, they would see these salamanders crawl out of the log. And so they thought that salamanders came from fire. And that's where <laughs> the word salamander comes from. Means fire lizard.
1: So yeah, yeah, they would be harvesting some wood from the forest, chuck it on their on the hearth, and then
0: salamanders would whatever if they picked up, went around picking up wood off the ground and they threw it in the fire, and all of a sudden you see a salamander come crawling out of it. And so
1: they thought they generated from the flames. So incredibly cool. And she was reading the car. You know, I, I love learning about like folk magic and folk medicine. They were talking about wild stuff where they believed the salamanders were super poisonous. So if you wanted to poison someone, you would tie a salamander to a tree and the poison from the salamander would infect the tree, so that when it fruits, the fruits would be poisonous. So that's, that's how to, a
0: very that's <laughs> a you know what man somebody would really have to have some spite in them to be have a to try to kill somebody over a time period that long. That's <laughs> <laughs> like man, that's a very slow way of going about it. But very uh, I never heard that one, but it doesn't surprise me. A very uh, creative
1: way to kill. Create,
0: someone. Very creative, but there are some. Uh, Species of salamander, uh, I should say, like newts. Um, mm. Like newts and salamanders are kind of, they're very closely related. But the big difference between newts and salamanders are the life cycles are kind of uh, are opposite. As adults, newts are aquatic. And they then their lar their juvenile stage are terrestrial. And that's those little red F's that you see walking around in the middle of the woods. Now, Which are amazing.
1: You see those all the time. Yeah. So they're
0: bright orange with red dots. Right. And uh and then with salamanders, it's just the opposite. You know, they are terrestrial as adults and they're aquatic as they're as juveniles. So it's mm. a kind of flip around. Okay. But that red F stage is uh there's a reason that things are bright red and in nature anything that's bright red is usually a warning sign Mm. that or or with fruit it's it's a signal that it's ripe or something but with salamanders uh a lot of animals that bright red is a warning it's it's referred to a aposematic warning coloration and Basically, it's just telling whatever it's looking at it, I'm toxic, mm. I don't taste good, uh, don't eat me, and red Fs are toxic, and there's only a few things that will probably eat a red F stage. Mm. But you have salamanders like northern red salamanders and some of these other salamanders uh, that mimic those red Fs, and they they're bright them. red as well, even though they're not toxic, but so, they're mimicking them.
1: So that's an uh, adaptive uh, trait to be able to yep. Yep. carry on your existence. So I guess with the poison dart frogs, they're all incredibly well.
0: They're all colorful. very colorful and stuff like that. Yeah, anytime that something, uh, at least in terrestrial world, coral reefs a whole different thing because everything's colorful down there. Mm. So that's another head scratcher. But uh, with terrestrial animals, anytime that something's really brightly colored like that. Except for birds, I, don't know, I guess with birds, cardinals are bright red, but they're not poisonous. Mm. Uh, uh, but well, what would be trying to eat the newts? Would it be birds and stuff? Uh maybe birds. You know, some wild turkeys scratching yeah. around might, you know, take a pick at them. But I don't know if a turkey would actually eat them. But mm. I'm sure turkeys do eat a lot of salamanders. Mm. It's an easy food source. Uh, some salamanders, like redbacks. Oh my god! You can have literally tens of thousands within a few hectares. Hmm. Uh, Yeah, they can be massive. In fact, the, the combined biomass of salamanders in the eastern deciduous forest outweighs all of the birds and mammals combined within that same area. Wow. That's how many salamanders can literally occur in one area. There can be literally tens of thousands, if not potentially millions of them. Incredible yeah. have you seen swarms that enormous there are some sites that you can go into um, but the problem is that you just see the tip of the iceberg you just mm. see the animals that are active on the surface mm. and now out, out in the western part of the state where you get into these rocky uh, mm. talus slopes and stuff like that um, you know you're just seeing what's popping up. That's a very three dimensional habitat. There's a lot of crab, cracks and crevices, and it goes mm. way down. And you can oftentimes hear water moving underneath it. So, what you're mm. just seeing is just activity on the surface. A lot of the most of the, the rest of that uh, population is below ground. Mm. So, who knows how massive these these numbers are? Yeah. When
1: when the when the bears
0: uh, bears eat a lot of salamanders too. Really? Oh yeah, they'll go around flip logs and they'll eat salamanders. Oh, I had no idea yeah, on that. Yeah.
1: Um. Yeah, when the herpetological spring kicks in, uh, when we lived back in near Front Royal, Virginia, there was a bunch of vernal pools on the property that we were renting at, and uh, we would go at night with flashlights and just watch the activity. I mean, no doubt, you're, it's almost a psychedelic experience at night. I yeah. mean, you're, it's, you, the seethingness, it's like, you're, it's like uh, you could either be looking at the beginning of everything, like the primordial seething sure. uh, life, or you could be looking inside a human body. It's like, it's very, you know, it's so obviously the connection with eggs and sperms with the tadpoles. like, you could be, it's just, it truly is like psychedelic to like stare into a vernal pool. Like what am I, what is this glimpse into a seething universe,
0: you know? It's another world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, with, uh, you know, salamanders, you know, you can go out to some of these areas of the mountains and you could go out there and, the conditions aren't great. You can go flip rocks and logs and everything and go look around. And you may never see, you may really struggle to find one or two of them. And then you have a really good rainstorm that night and you go out there at night with a flashlight and they're everywhere. <laughs> they just come, I mean, they just literally just boil up out of the ground. God, it's cool. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's an amazing. They're amazing animals. And some of the evolutionary lineages here in Virginia go back millions of years. So incredible. Yeah.
1: So incredible. So with this podcast, I like to kind of transitioning out of what we've been talking about, I kind of like to ask the guest for a story. I don't know if anything comes to mind. But has there been anything, um, you know, I read a little bit about your childhood, how, how much all these animals, your experience, your childhood experience with these animals, which obviously led to your career, um, or has there been anything very profound from working in the natural world? Has there been any anything very exciting on uh, field work or any anything like that? Anything uh, a harrowing experience, a profound experience? Uh,
0: uh, it goes all. Any- <laughs> it's uh it's there's a lot of fun there's funny stories there's some sad stories uh it's you know it can be let's it's, do
1: sad i'm uh, i'm melancholic by nature i like
0: oh man um well i'll tell you sad i got a couple of salamander stories since we do since we're working with salamanders quite a bit we'll stick with salamander stories About uh, I don't know, probably about 2016, 2015, um, up on the northern neck in Westmoreland County. A lady was out. Uh, she had some horses, a small farm, and she was went and flipped. Her, and this is probably middle of January, early February, middle of winter, and she was out flipping the uh, a horse trough, the cleaning it out, the water, putting the water in it, and uh, she flipped the horse trough over. And she and she sends me this picture of this strange looking um, lizard. As she called it. What's this lizard? And there was this big, fat, gravid female tiger salamander sitting underneath her. I'm like, wow. You know, we only have two or three known sites of tiger salamanders. It's a state-endangered species. So we only have a couple, three sites, and nothing recorded from the northern neck. So I was like, wow, that's really odd. So I uh, went on Google Earth, did my Google Earth research, and looked all around. I couldn't see anything that looked like a breeding site. And so I got up there and met with her and asked her this and that. And I was like, well is there any ponds or anything around here? Because they don't breed in streams or anything. She says, no, no nothing. I know it, but I hear, uh, I hear frogs calling from the woods across the street. So I hike back up in the woods about a quarter mile or so away. And I come around the bit around the edge and I pop up and there's this little hidden mill pond that it's just stuck back in the woods. It's been probably inactive for 50 or 60 years. And, uh, there was egg masses everywhere. Tiger saw egg masses. And, uh, so I was like, Astro was like, who owns this pond? And who owns this property? She says, I'm not sure, but I think one of their, I think belong, there's a guy down the road, there's an elderly gentleman who lives in this old farmhouse, you might go ask him. So I go down there and knock on the door and I talk to him and he answers the door and he comes out there and he's like, oh yeah, that's my cousin, blah, blah, blah. And I'm going to kind of diverge here a little bit with this story because it kind of gets kind of cool in the sense of, I'm standing there in his kitchen. He's like, hold on, I'll get the contact for you, blah, this and that. And I go back out there, and he comes back out. And I'm standing there in his kitchen. I look at his refrigerator, and he's got this Rolling Stones 1981 Tattoo You sticker on the side of his refrigerator. And he comes back out, and I said, yeah, I was at that concert in, at Hampton Coliseum in high school. And he's like, yeah, I was the first person to ever interview the, the Rolling Stones in 64 in the United States. So he goes off to tell me this story about how he— Met the stones at Norfolk airport. Walked up on the plane and he didn't even know who the stones were. And he's sat there interviewed Keith Richards, you know. And I'm like, so he starts breaking out this photo album. But anyway, so the melancholy part of this story is this long story is that uh, I went back and uh, unfortunately, a few years later, uh, the old mill pond dam finally eroded and blew out and drained out. And that's we lost that site completely. Uh, and it was just really sad. We just had discovered it and within two or three years it was gone. So I was able to work with the landowner and talk to the landowner and we finally got, we went in back in and restored the site this past year. So we're keeping our fingers crossed that the water's back and the salamanders will come back and we only missed one or two breeding seasons, but That one was kind of sad because you had this really cool experience. You're like so excited. It's the first salamander site that's been found in decades here in the state. And then all of a sudden we lost it within a few years of finding it. Um, Another uh, uh, funny salamander story happened right around the corner here. Uh, I was... uh, It was a big rainstorm came through, and this is when I used to live around the corner here in Charles City. Uh, And I decided, I'll run down there and take a look at these vernal ponds and see if any salamanders are moving. So I didn't take my state vehicle with me. I just took my personal vehicle. I didn't feel like stopping picking up the state vehicle. So I drove around the corner parked, went back in the woods, was hiking around. And I come back out. There's sheriff's department sitting by my car, and it's pouring down rain. And uh, so I go walking up to the sheriff's apartment, and he's the guy cracks the window and it's raining. He's like, what are you doing? And I said, oh, man, I'm out here looking for salamanders. This is the time of year they're breeding and doing all this stuff and everything else. And he looks at me and he's like, man, ain't nobody making up a story like that. He said, have a good night. And just drove off. <laughs> Your
1: anecdote there is kind of, illustrates how incredibly fragile some of these little ecosystems are for some of the more rare and endangered of the
0: it's the challenges yeah um wildlife conservation is uh, there's kind of two narratives to it it's uh, i heard somebody refer to it as like life living with bruises because mm. you're constantly there's a lot of you know challenges and failures and stuff like that and bad things happen um but I sometimes refer to it. It's like, and uh, it's not to get too Nietzsche about it, but it's mm. kind of like uh, it's. Uh, I call it living with, uh, thriving on small victories by, while being surrounded by catastrophic losses. Mm. And uh, it's, it's so. What
1: are those main problems? So the two part question here: What are the main problems for for amphibians and reptiles? Secondly, this is a question straight from Vivian which she said in the car this morning, which is if you have a little property, say you got a few acres, a little backyard, say you got a lot of acres, what can you do to help, uh, you know, if you want to have a good population of salamanders reptiles, how can you help create those little ecosystems?
0: Well, you can create habitat friendly backyards, you know, create brush piles, you can create, okay. you know, plant native plants, do all that stuff. You don't need a Kentucky bluegrass, you know, front backyard that looks like the Augusta golf course. You don't need that, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, I've got little brush piles throughout my. I got live on about an acre and a half. It goes back to a creek, and I've got um, here in Williamsburg, and uh, I've got brush piles put out. I plant natives and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I've documented ten species of snakes in my yard. That's awesome. Yeah, and uh, now they grant you they're very common. Uh, you know, uh, uh, rat snakes, racers. You know, some fossorial snakes like brown snakes, worm snakes, stuff like that. But even in a small piece of property, you could. Be pretty biologically diverse in a small piece of property if you manage it and you plant the right plants, provide Mm. the right habitats and everything else for them, you can be pretty successful in your own little world.
1: Yeah, we had read um, just if you're interested in woodpeckers and whatnot, to keep those dead trees, keep the snags, and I'm sure those are going to be lizards.
0: Love those things, skinks. uh, Yeah, I've got you know I've got. Uh, at least two species of lizard in the back. Three species of lizard. I've Got ground skink. I got five line, and I got broadheads. I got a couple, three big broadheads, and they're nine, ten inches long. Mm. And they live on the side of the garage, and I see them all the time out there basking. They're huge, and uh, you know, and uh, you know, they and they primarily are arboreal species of lizard. They live in those old rotten tree stumps mm. and old rotten dying trees, so they love that stuff. Yeah, mm. absolutely.
1: Okay. So those are some good tips on how to have them in your yard. And then, so what are some of those major issues? I mean, I, I, it seems as though when I listen to stuff about problems for animals, the two things that are always coming up is habitat loss and pollution, I guess.
0: Habitat loss for reptiles and amphibians. Most of it's habitat loss, mm. uh, loss of these uh, vernal pools, you know, like I said, that mm. you know, a lot of them are not protected because they are isolated wetlands. Um, and a uh, roadkill road mortality is brutal on turtles, especially box mm. turtles, box turtles every spring. And especially after those, you know, may June rainstorms come through, they get moving across roads and they get hit by roads. And unfortunately those are challenges that are more so with reptiles and amphibians than perhaps, you know, with birds that can easily fly across the road. Uh, but they, they still have their challenges as well. Um, but, uh, Yeah, uh, reptiles, amphibians. There are also the uh, some. I would say some some cultural challenges too, and the fact that you know there's still a narrative out there that people think the only good snake is a dead snake, Mm. and uh, you know, and a vast majority of the snakes that people kill that think are poisonous snakes or venomous snakes, being the correct term, uh, they're just you know, there's just a common garter snake or something like Mm -hmm. that that's not doing anything. And people just get freaked out over them. Um, But we're not trying to change people's narrative into becoming snake lovers, but we just want to change the narrative of people just becoming tolerant to them. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they they have a purpose there. Uh, You know, particularly with the ever increasing concern over Lyme's disease. Lyme's Mm -hmm. disease is just, you know, a huge issue anymore uh has been for a while and uh you know uh, there was some research out of Maryland that showed that a single rattlesnake can inadvertently remove 2500 ticks out of the wild every year just by from, killing to, the by mice by just eating mice mm. so
1: we the last place we lived was a little cabin we were renting there for 5 years and it was the foundation was an, was old like 1800s yeah. but down in that basement it's a little hairy down there uh and very primitive like we were we didn't have normal water we had water from a pond right. uh, running through the house so we'd have to get tubs for drinking water but uh down in that basement in the rocks whew, copperheads just so many copperheads in there but old
0: fa- old stone foundations are notorious for that mm. yeah absolutely yep mm.
1: yeah so that was a little hairy definitely had some close encounters with the copperheads but it's so cool to have all these creatures around um Well, so one thing I think is extremely, well, I'm very attracted to people that are so passionate and it's obvious like, you know, you've been doing this for your career so long and you're still so pumped about all these creatures. Um, I'm also very fascinated in, in psychology and I've heard a handful of thinkers say that basically the child, a child knows what it wants to do. And so I think it's so fascinating regarding like a life, like the soul of the kid Knows its purpose in many ways. Your interests as a child are is the path to a uh, a full and whole and happy adult. So it's uh, you know I read a little bit about some of your child encounters with uh, herps, and uh, I just thought it'd be kind of cool to just hear about some of your early childhood love for these animals, some of your early experiences with these critters. Does anything come to mind?
0: You know, I grew up in Newport News back when Newport News was a pretty rural area, and so I spent, you know, literally, not to sound too Tom So ish but, uh, I, you know, I was had a cane pole and was a little kid, still have those cane poles, actually, in, the, in my garage uh, down by the pond trying to catch catfish or whatever, and when the fish weren't biting, you know, we'd walk around the pond and try to catch turtles and frogs and stuff like that, and then I started working as a volunteer for the Virginia living museum at the time it was referred, it was called the peninsula nature and science center. And for me, the outdoors was, um, a bit of an escape too. Um, it was, uh, it was, you know, get go away from turmoil that might be going on at the house and, uh, be able to kind of go and go and get into your own little world. So to speak down there catching stuff. Um, I'd go by, I could ride my bicycle home with a snake wrapped around my arm trying to get home. My mom would be, uh, How do you know that that's not something poisonous or venomous? And, she, and I'd be like, oh, I know my snakes. I'm like, yeah, whatever. And then, of course, you keep it for a while. And I never did tell her how many snakes got out. She'd say, Whatever happened to that other snake or whatever. It's like, Oh, I let it go. You know, they, they got out all the time. <laughs> There's another uh, another funny story. If it's okay, I'll tell you another one. There was a, when I was working at the Virginia Living Museum. Oh, I'd have probably been in my twenties at this time. Uh, was when I first started working there. Uh, I kind of was moving up the food chain from a volunteer. Um, and a uh, 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 lady walks in and she's got this big brown salamander and a styrofoam cup. Comes into the museum and I looked in the cup and. I was like, that's not a native salamander. And I was like, where did you get this? She says, it fell out of our Christmas tree. And so I was like, so I called the store where she got it, for, where she bought her tree from. And they, were, they said, oh, yeah, we got our Douglas firs from Oregon. And sure enough, this was a northwestern salamander. That's, they had harvested the trees, bundled them up, shipped them across the United States. And the salamander went for a ride. So we ended up uh, making a big PR thing out of it. And uh, at the time, there was Northwest Airlines, and so we contacted the airlines, the Oregon Zoo, and made this a kind of press release, and we put a little carrier together for it, and we ended up shipping the salamander back through Northwest Airlines back to Oregon to the nat- to the zoo there, and where it went on display, and blah, blah, blah. But a lot of, uh, you know, it's like a lot of kids, you know, they were outdoors, fishing, hunting, and just kind of got in, you know, just... Kind of got curiosity. Uh, the occasional snake or turtle would show up in the yard, and was kind of curious about that. Um, I can remember the neighborhood got all you know. They, they killed a black snake, and because there was a black snake in the bushes in front of our house, and somebody came over. I forgot some older kids down the road came over, and all the every, all the neighbors came out. You know, ever the big thing in the neighborhood and rat snake in the bush. They ended up killing it, and after everybody left, I kind of sat there and was looking at the snake. And I was pretty young. I was probably 8, 9, 10 years old. And I just remember looking at the snake going, why did we kill that? It really didn't. It was just, it was just a rat snake. And I think maybe that was a trigger point. It was just kind of like, why did we kill that thing? It just didn't make any sense. It was just a snake sitting in a bush, not doing anything, not bothering anybody. But for some reason, we felt compelled to have to kill it. And... You know, I guess that's kind of where it triggered a lot of things is like, you know, just leave it alone, you know. And then I became that kid in the neighborhood that people would call and say, hey, can J.D. come down and get this snake out of our garden or something like that? So I was like that kid in the neighborhood that would come and catch that weird snake kid that would come catch the snakes out of your garden or something like that. But I remember that very clearly as a little kid, uh neighbor's killing that rat snake and just couldn't figure out, you know, why did we have to kill it? So...
1: Well, I like that story because, uh, well, for one it's awesome because uh, I feel very much that I was one of these last generations that didn't have a cell phone as a kid. So we were outside all the time, playing war, uh, rollerblading, roller hockey, just always outside. And um, I didn't have hunting or anything like that where we were, I was in the suburbs. Uh, But I so much cherish that uh, Tom Sawyer element to childhood. Yeah. And it's such an awesome experience that I feel really sorry for the modern generations that seem, you know, you drive through s- suburbia, you don't see kids everywhere outside doing stuff. So like your childhood experiences out in the woods. Yeah. I love hearing that.
0: Yeah, and uh you know the, the I've worked with a lot of uh, you know, upcoming 20 somethings, 30, you know, kids and I should say kid young adults and I'm always blown away by their level of knowledge that they have now at such an early age Mm. because of, you know, everybody's got a computer in their pocket. Mm. They can Google anything, you know, and they can, you know, find out information or find out something within a matter of seconds when, you know, for me, my generation, it was the old interlibrary loan. Where you had to go to the library and order a paper, order a book or something and wait for it to come in before you Mm. could read up on this issue. And I'm just just dumbfounded. And the passion, particularly when it comes to uh, herping, you know, Mm -hmm. like the birders and the life listers. The what? uh, The what? Life listers. Don't know that. Life listing is this. Uh, I can't stand life listers, <laughs> but anyway, life listers are people that are extremely enthusiastic about seeing things and kind of creating this list of oh, list. animals. Yeah, life listers. Okay, so checking off boxes. Yeah, and, okay. and, and it was really, I and mean, it started out probably in the birders are the most notable. You know, they're always there, but there's a lot of herpers too that are life listers. They're obsessed with having to find something, travel all over the place to go look for something and get okay. that photo. But um, but uh, yeah, and they are incredibly knowledgeable mm. about their their subject matter. They're incredibly passionate about it. Well, uh, that's awesome to hear. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm very confident and very. Mm. Um, they're very outdoors. Um, oh, that's awesome, too. Yeah, they like to travel quite a bit. You know, they have connections all and through social media. They have connections all over the globe where they can go and meet somebody and go do herping in another country. So cool. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's amazing. Well, um, I love
1: hearing that because there's obviously a positive side to some of, the, yeah. some of our worries about the technological future. There's obviously positives. If you're a very sure. passionate person, you can fuel your passion.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like you're yeah, and it's you can become that part of that community, and they become you know, and they are very competitive. You know, everybody's got to go get you know who's got this, and who's seen that, and everything else. And uh, they kind of drive me a little crazy, though. Uh, but uh, you know, but they're they're gun ho about it. So you know, I'm very confident with the level of conservationists that's mm. coming up through the ranks. Uh, there's some outstanding young, talented young men and women uh, and passing the torch won't be a big problem whatsoever. Uh, the big problem will be, uh, funding and job mm, opportunities.
1: Um, mm. <laughs> uh, it was fascinating hearing you talk about like, why did we kill this snake?
0: Yeah. Um,
1: I hadn't, I had an experience. I know I'm talking to a lawman here, but, uh, cause you're, I mean, you work for the, there as a warden. Uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not, yeah, I'm not, not a, a not enforcer- but I do work with law enforcement. What I mean. yeah. But uh back in my twenties, you know, experimenting a little bit, uh, trying a little bit of psychedelic mushrooms. I remember the tiniest amount, but I was on a beach up in like Long Island, and um there were these rocks on the beach. And I just wanted to break open this rock just to look to see inside of it, to see like the crystalline structure. Right. And all of a sudden, you know, I have this realization like it probably took millions of years to create this rock. And I want to break it out of just like mild interest, kind of like with a snake. It's like, why did we, we killed this? Just, what was the point of that?
0: What was the point <laughs> of it? Yeah.
1: Um, just like for the smallest reason. Yeah.
0: Just, yeah you can know, you know, you know, always joke around too, you know, with your rock that you like, you always joke around, like, oh, so you see, pick up this rock, you skip it back across the lake, and you're like, Eh, it probably took a few million years for that rock to get over to the shoreline. <laughs> well, there you go, just to get where it got. <laughs> just to get where it got. Yeah. You just threw it back out there. <laughs> wow.
1: Did you, you mentioned hunting. Did you grow up doing any of that?
0: No, I was fishing. fishing. I, I enjoy fishing, yeah. Right on. So, but
1: Right on. Well, I guess we can kind of start wrapping it up a little here. All I mean, right. I guess one thing that would be awesome, I'm very just interested in regions, right? Okay. So um, being down here, so different than where I live yesterday we went down to the great Dismal Swamp I mean mm-hmm. what an amazing place I'm really crossing fingers to find someone to talk about the history because I know there was a there was a whole population of people living in there Native Americans yeah there was used to
0: be part of the uh, underground rail system underground yeah. railroad escape yeah. route there yep. were
1: um, escaped slaves created a
0: yep encampments a, a, there yep. entire
1: encampments um even kind of like fugitives people running from the law were living back there because it is it is an incredible yeah uh,
0: George Washington yeah Built those ditches down there and stuff, yeah.
1: But just looking at it, it's like a formidable. It's I don't know what the right word is, but it's like really a. It's it, its own. You go down universe. there during the summer
0: and see and see how see what it would. Getting a perspective now when there's no mosquitoes or chick, mm. ticks or chiggers or mm. anything like that out mm. is a little different. than go down there in the middle of summertime when it's ticks, chiggers, and mosquitoes. Mm. Yeah, could and you imagine living in there with no just being out there camped for weeks at a time no hiding. I can't I, yeah. I
1: we were saying yesterday, what were they drinking the whole place is filled with this black ominous water what were they drinking were they drinking that water I guess uh, and then and then um you know you have these fantastic uh bald Cypress I think sometimes there's Spanish moss in there yep you're these what is that cane do you know what that is oh uh Does cane it, break it, so there's a bamboo in there Yeah, is that that's a type n- of native it's, cane? Yeah, it's,
0: yeah it's native cane incredible uh, it's a uh, Uh, It was referred to. Gosh, who was the uh, naturalist? Bird, I think it was. Um, I can't remember the name of the naturalist, the uh, English naturalist, colonial naturalist that referred to it as the green sea, and it was basically just huge swaths of uh, canebrake. That's what I was going to ask you. So
1: I love, you know, I love when um, I love when the natural world also has this kind of like literary element, like the canebrake rattlesnake, just. like just the visual that comes to mind with it, with the words canebrake, and like you're saying, these enormous swaths of this bamboo type grass, right. native grass. Um, I was remembering I had just read uh, one of Cormac McCarthy. Do you know him?
0: Mm-mm.
1: Cormac McCarthy, incredible American writer, very uh, folkloric in many ways. But he's one of his stories is about in Appalachia some convict is running from the law and they're escaping through the cane break. So just like kind of seeing the cinematic right. uh, image of a person just trying to disappear into these thick, thick, thick cane breaks. So those don't really exist anymore, do they? These enormous cane swaths are they uh, still around?
0: Probably not that I'm aware of. Maybe if you went down North Carolina or something, but I'm not okay. aware of any massive, they're usually kind of in patches and they're kind of an understory type plant. Mm. Um, and the Canebrake rattlesnake, which is actually just a geographic variation of the timber rattlesnake. Okay. Um, it's uh, when you say Canebrake, you're referring to rattlesnakes out of the coastal plain region. Okay. And then when people say timbers, which are all timbers, usually like referring to the mountain populations. Um, so it's the same species? Same species, it's okay. just a geographic variation. Okay. Of it. Um, and you know, there's a lot of colonial history with the uh, canebrake and timber rattlesnake. Uh, you know, several flags. The Union Jack mm. um, has a has a timber rattlesnake on it. The Gadsden flag. That's or, the don't tread on me. Don't tread on me is a timber rattlesnake mm. on it. Um, it was almost our national uh, symbol instead of the bald eagle. Really? Yeah, Benjamin uh, Franklin uh, really advocated for the timber rattlesnake because of it was a potential. It was a um, how did he put it? Um, it is, it only uses its venom or power or something like that, its its abilities to, when it's threatened and confronted. Otherwise, it's a relatively docile. Animal. I'm not sure exactly, I can't remember exact words that he used, but the that symbolism was, he was symbolism going for. that he was going for. I
1: really like that. Yeah, but so it's incredible fighting power if it needs to, but it'll give you a warning,
0: it'll give you a warning, it'll do you all the stuff, and uh. And there was a great naturalist named Pope that uh, did that. Yep. You know, rattlesnakes are first cowards, then they're bluffers, and then last of all, they're fighters. Uh, just a kind of parallel. I'm not sure exactly the wording on it, but, uh, but yeah, Ben Franklin really pushed for the uh, rattlesnake to be our national. I had emblem. my first yeah.
1: really scary experience with a fat. I mean, I'm talking like
0: big I mean, males. Those big are the, those are the males up
1: where we are in West Virginia. Yeah. We've got a little squirrel hunting dog, so we were just walking a logging road. And she started getting into some some grass there. And then I saw the fattest rattlesnake I've personally ever seen. And it I actually did have an instinctual experience. My hair stood up. Like I had chills because yeah. cause like it was rattling. My dog was like inches away. And that one, I feel like that could have been pretty close. And just seeing, you know, you were talking about how there 's been a change in attitudes towards snakes which is definitely very necessary not but what was fascinating for me was having this like ancient uh instinctual experience of the fear like the primal fear like it made my hair stand up and just to be so close to it to see my the dog I love so close to it in totally in striking range it was interesting to have like a instinctual response to it
0: yeah there's some some folks uh sociologists that are I guess but I guess that's what they are uh done have done Tried to link that there is a um, innate fear of snakes mm. through evolution that we are instinctually afraid of them. Uh, I kind of go back and forth with that one a little bit in the sense that you know kids seem to walk right up and be willing to touch a snake and pick up a snake and tell their parents stand there go like, oh you know and they mm. react to how their parents react. Mm. Um, but that is, and I believe there are some. Some primates that actually produce certain sounds or certain verbalizations, vocalizations that are specific to when there's a snake present. Mm. And so they actually, so there might be some evolutionary context there, but to uh, let everybody know. Yeah, snakes are, uh, because they look so different, they have no arms and legs. You know, not only to mention the old, uh, Garden of Eden story that you know, we all grew, that grew up if you were Christian and uh, uh, and uh, so there's you know long history there of in, in Hollywood. Mm. Have you ever seen a movie or a cartoon or anything come out that portrays a snake in a positive way? <laughs> Never has been, <laughs> and uh, the only thing I can think of is maybe Rango, where the or the snake be, kind of becomes a good snake at the end of the cartoon. Uh, but even sharks have got good role models uh, you got finding Nemo where the shark the great white became you know the buddy with everybody and helped them all out you've never seen that with snakes every time there's a snake in a movie mm-hmm. it's always portrayed in a negative way always and- it's
1: also interesting going on a tangent how we use animals to um, convey human, Characteristics like man, that person's a snake. That person's oh, a shark. Absolutely. You're, right. Like You're that, right. Or that person's a pig. You know, it's real yeah. or a dog. You know? Yeah. It's so fascinating how we mythologize animals. Yeah. I, I love stigmatize
0: kind of that kind. them with a particular right. uh Charac- character character. And uh yeah, you know, it's like you see one snake or even the media. You know, the, uh, there's a shark. A shark was seen somewhere. Well, those are shark-infested waters. They see a right. snake and see one snake. Well, those are snake-infested, <laughs> you know, and it's like. snakey. Yeah, yeah.
1: I get, okay, I guess to uh, wrap it up, I was just sure. starting to get in about the dismal swamp. You know, we were talking about the cane break. Are there um, any interesting um, reptiles and amphibians that are, very specific to, I know the swamp goes out into North Carolina. Right. Um, but are there any that are interesting to you that are really, uh, more of the, the swamp being there? N- uh, well, native? there's a
0: good population of canebrake rattlesnakes right. there. Okay. Um, and there's a lot of different stuff down there, you know, turtles. Uh, it's a really unique biologically diverse mm. area. It's a beautiful area. Um, but uh, and then there's old folklore that you know there's no alligators down there. There's never been any alligators in Virginia. No, uh,
1: but there's close because we've been close. We've, we've been canoeing 15 M- minutes over the border. Merchants Mill Pod. Yep, that's, there's alligators. That's
0: believed to have been introduced by an old park ranger.
1: Really? Yeah,
0: because I don't think they've ever seen any reproduction, and it's just a, some old gators that are still hanging on down
1: there. Really? And okay. It's,
0: and it's thought that back I don't know you know some several year, years ago that a park ranger put, dumped them there and, Interesting. cuz it's such an isolated and disjunct from the main range but North Carolina did a lot of work on alligators recently and they saw no northward range expansion So are alligators.
1: there some in southern North Carolina? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, there's okay. alligators okay. definitely okay. naturally occurring in North Carolina okay. up okay. through the south of the Albemarle Sound. Uh, but the only gators that we ever get in Virginia are usually people dumping their unwanted pets, which Got is it. a real sad situation. It's illegal to possess any crocodilian in Virginia. And unfortunately, people buy these things impulsively at when they're down in South Carolina on some roadside place where they're selling it. Alligators for eggers? 25, 30 bucks, and Jeez. people buy them. And they're cute, and then what they raise stupid them. a thing to do. And, you know, they don't realize they're going to grow. <laughs> what are you going to do? Well, I'll just give it to a zoo. No zoo wants your alligator because there's already billions of them out there. <laughs> it's wow. like that happens over and over again. Impulsive buying of animals, but no, there's no gators. that Are,
1: are there salamanders good. in the dismal swamp? Or oh, that, yeah.
0: yeah okay, okay. Yeah, there's some cool salamanders. Amphumas, which I think are really cool. Amphuma? Amphumas. Two toed amphumas. They have little bifurcated. Uh, front feet and uh, they look like that. You can't see that on the podcast, mm. um, but uh, they, it's like the peace sign. Yeah, it's like a peace sign. Yeah. And uh, um, it's Virginia's longest salamander and they get mm. up to about three feet long.
1: Extraordinary. Yeah. Wow.
0: Yeah. They're pretty cool. Cool animals down there.
1: Very neat. Okay. So I guess uh, in closing, is there, if someone is really interested in getting more, uh, I don't know, learning more or uh, getting involved with, their her- local herpetology chapter, anything like that. Is there anything you could say for someone who wants to get more interested?
0: Uh, yeah, you could join the Virginia Herpetological Society. Okay, um, it's a statewide group. They have a lot of uh, like uh, herp blitzes, so to speak, uh, where they'll go to pick out a different site. It could be a state park, uh, wildlife management area, and they'll organize uh, outings where you can go out and you can. And there's some fantastic. Uh, amateur and professional herpers associated with that group um and they do a lot of education and outreach work um and that's a good way to kind of kind of segue your in, way in and meet people and network around and learn a lot about the reptiles and amphibians of virginia <laughs>